Well, welcome back. Okay, our first question. I still don't understand why God doesn't heal pain and suffering for so long. I, for instance, cancer patients. Uh, once we are in heaven, will we forget the pain? I don't love the way he lets people suffer for long periods. How do you think God looks at mercy assistance to someone passing, palliative care? So, when we get to heaven, so a little metaphor. Uh, you probably can't see it, but on the back of... Uh, on the back of this finger, there's a scar. You probably can't see that. When I was uh, 17, I took a knife right across the back of my finger, the bone. I remember that. I remember it. I saw the bone flash. I saw blood flood in. I grabbed it, ran, had to get sutures. I remember the pain of the, of the uh, numbing medicine and the sutures. And I remember it was black and blue, and then it turned to yellow bruise, and then it turned red and itched. I remember all this. I'm not bleeding. I'm not hurting. I'm not actually in any pain. I just have memories of all that. But I don't actually experience any of it. Uh, We will never forget what we went through here. And I have appreciation for the doctors who were able to heal that without infection and, and, and without any sequelae. I've never had problems with it the rest of my life. We will never forget what we went through here. But we will not experience or be in pain or suffering there. And the fact that we were delivered from whatever we went through here will give us great appreciation for what Christ went through to heal and deliver us. First thing. Second, about this palliative stuff. Did God provide palliative care to Stephen when Stephen was being stoned? Yes. 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 He yes, he did. Yes, he did. And you find the story through the martyrs uh, throughout time. So yes, Stephen is dying, but he has a vision of heaven, and he has a sense of peace as he's being stoned. And, and you find this through history. So anything we can do to relieve suffering and help people in, in times like this is a very godly thing to do. So yes, God, I think, supports that. It says, please explain the last sentence of Matthew twenty-seven sixty-five. This last deception will be worse than the first. The context here is the priests that have crucified Christ. Christ has died on the cross, gone to Pilate and said, hey, let's put a guard out there because he said he's going to rise again on the third day. And his, his disciples may come steal the body away. And this last deception would be greater than the first. It's very straightforward. They didn't believe Christ was Messiah. Uh, they believed he was lying and claiming to be Messiah and deceiving people to follow him. And they believed that if, we didn't put the, if they didn't put the guard there uh, and the, the apostles stole the body away, they could then present him as having risen to the day, dead and have more followers and have uh, more undermining of their authority. So the, the, the deception of his resurrection would be greater than the deception of him being alive. And so that was it's very straightforward. That's all that meant. My son tried to commit suicide by hanging strangulation. Uh, His lips began to tingle, and he could no longer hear music. Then he heard a voice in his head say, What are you doing? Get up. And and, uh, evidently he did, because we have the story. Uh, What could this voice have been? God? Uh, Any other professional opinion? I don't have the answer to that question. I can tell you what it could have been. But whether it was or not, we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to know. It could have been a voice of God. It could have been one of God's angels intervening. And we were told, if you value some of Ellen White's writing, she said uh, in one place that, that in the life of all of us, there are times when death seems preferable to life. 
that, that the burdens of life and the, and the difficulties become so overwhelming that death seems preferable to life. And she said, at those times, we could see with heavenly perspective, we would see God's angels standing beside us, seeking to put our feet back on the path to deliver us from ourselves. That's what she says. So it's possible one of God's angels did this. It's also possible it was his own ambivalence and his own mind. Uh, one of the things you said is his... his, his uh, tingling of his uh, lips and so forth. Uh, when you uh, have hypoxia, uh, you can have uh, hallucinatory experiences well-documented. So I, I don't know. I don't know whether it was God, whether it was an angel, whether it was his own ambivalent uncertainty and his own self-preservation, wanting to act the part of him that really wanted to live and overcome whatever was distressing him, speaking to him and say, what are you doing? You can overcome this. Get out of here. Uh, so forth. I don't know. Uh, what? It could be any of those. Yes, Russell. Yeah, I read a, a, an article, an interview, that was about interviewing people who tried to commit suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and who were unsuccessful. They were rescued. And consistently throughout, through every one of them said that their first thought when they leaned forward and gravity took over was, what have you done? Mm. Wow. So, so it could be that... That yep. that self-preservation that, yep. you know, I, wait, what, I, I, want, I want to live. Yep. In my experience, I will tell you, I've dealt uh, as, as a psychiatrist with many people who struggle with these types of ideas. I have rarely, if ever, truly felt, found somebody who truly wanted to die. What happens with most suicide thoughts are actually this. The person in their experience is in some form of pain or suffering. It can be physical, chronic physical pain of some kind. It can be emotional, circumstantial in some way. But they're hurting in some way, and they don't see any way of resolving it, any escape or any way out. And so suicide becomes the idea, I can stop hurting if I end my life. I can escape this pain. And when I present it to my patients, I will tell you, they all say, yes, uh, I would rather be well and out of this misery, pain, suffering, torment, embarrassment, humiliation, whatever the issue is, I'd rather be out of it and happy than in it. And I really just want to get out. And I said, well, let's, let's then, every time you get that thought about wanting to die, let's go stop, replace, and go, no, I want to die. I want to escape this, this pain or suffering and put escape. And then I will help you find other avenues of escape. And we, we do that. So I would say that's primarily what most suicide thoughts are. Even for, even for the late-life people that are 80 or 90 and they start to get dementia and they commit suicide in that state, what they really want is to escape the dementia. Said, well, here, here, we've got a new cure that cures you and you'll get back to your vitality and environment. They'll take the cure. They don't really want to die either. So congratulations on your new uh, appointment. May God continue to bless as... Uh, uh, as his character is revealed, what would your recommendation be to help a mid-20s medical student that feels their comprehension and memory are lacking? I have ever so briefly discussed exercise, sleep, diet, but would be very interested in anything you could uh, uh, found applicable, including supplements and so forth. So uh, that's, uh, to, to me, that's way too vague a question. Uh, I would have to assess, okay, describe me what you mean, memory. Is it actually memory? Many people come to me complaining of memory problems. They don't have memory problems. They have attention problems. In order to remember something, you have to first register it. It has to register. If it doesn't register, you can't recall it. Okay? And people with distractibility and attention problems will 
And, and, and all of us have done this a little bit. I'll give you an example for, for most of the men in the room, the women, and the women will, will identify it in their, in their husbands when I tell you this. Okay. Yeah, men, you're watching a show on TV, a football game maybe, and your wife says, hey, when, this, uh, when you get a break, will you take the trash out? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And so there's, there's response. So you, you're aware enough to recognize and respond, but your attention is actually not there. Your attention's on the game, and it doesn't register. And then later, you asked me to do that? I don't remember that. <laughs> that is not a memory problem. <laughs> you all laughing because you, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's an attention problem. Where's your attention? And so... Uh, for me, I can't answer this question because I really don't know what the problem is. It may be untreated ADHD in somebody, and they need to treat the ADHD, and you'll have a resolution of this problem. But there are a lot of ADHD mimickers. One of the ADHD is inability to attend, focus, concentrate, stay on task, so forth, which is prefrontal cortex dysfunction. But anything that causes prefrontal cortex dysfunction can look like ADHD as long as the prefrontal cortex isn't functioning well. And the, the most common thing that causes an ADHD lookalike is sleep deprivation. When you deprive somebody of sleep, they don't focus as well. They don't attend as well. They don't concentrate as well. They can't retain things as well. They, and so they're more distractible. And so if, if this student is because they, are, they have a certain conscientiousness, they want to do good, and they're in medical school, and they have a big assignment, and they're staying up late to work hard, and they're not getting adequate sleep, then they may have attention problems and they're not registering. Additionally... For a college student, memories consolidate in sleep. So if you aren't giving yourself adequate sleep, then the study that, studies that you have done for the day, you will lose portions of that information will not be retained. So right now, if you're listening to anything I've taught you in class today, it's going into a part of your brain called the hippocampi or the hippocampus. That's short-term retention. When you sleep tonight, that will literally be transferred from that circuitry of your brain into other brain regions for long-term storage. That transfer requires sleep. If you don't get adequate sleep, then you don't transfer all data, and you lose things and uh, things that you don't retain as well. well. They did a study of college students. They brought them in and randomized them to two groups, and they had to memorize a list of made-up words and meanings that they attached to these made-up words because they didn't. They, they, they used made-up words because they didn't want to uh, tap into already understood vocabulary and previous learning. So that's why it had to be new stuff. And then they uh, and then they had uh, one group go and sleep. Oh, and they tested, they tested both groups after the learning period, period of learning, tested both groups. And then one group got to go to sleep. One group was kept up all night. They brought them back the next morning and tested both groups again. Not only did the group that slept score better than the group that didn't sleep, they scored better than they themselves did right after the memory, uh, right after the memory period. Okay? Memories consolidate in sleep. So I would evaluate the sleep situation of this person. Uh, are they getting adequate sleep? Do they have potential sleep disorder like sleep apnea where they're in and out of stage one sleep and they're not getting the deep restorative sleep? So I would look at that. Uh, I would look at their nutrition. Um, studies showed that if, if this person eats a lot of sugary foods, for a few hours after you eat something high sugar, that, that high sugar for a few hours will actually interfere with memory and memory consolidation. Okay, it's not permanent, but it's transitory. So if they are studying and eating sugary foods, that will actually interfere with their ability to learn what they're studying. Okay, so there's a lot of things you'd want to look at, but I, I, I don't, we're not going to do a seminar on, on, on brain health today. So let's see. You have uh, frequently uh, directed people to Bible studies online on your website. The lesson on the Passion of Christ talks about the second death and does not coincide with what I have heard you saying regarding Christ dying the second death. Would you, you clarify the discrepancy for me? 
And so, first off, the lesson she's referring to, we have a Bible study called the Shore Word Bible Study, and it was uh, uh, put together by uh, Bill Chambers, and it's a very well-done Bible study, and we uh, support that, and I'm, I'm very happy that it's there. Uh, in this, And there are 18 different lessons, and you can download those from our website and look at them. And I would first off tell the person who, who wrote this to go and read the, the lesson uh, 11 is the Passion of Christ, lesson 12 is Second Death. If you read the second death, uh, what he says in the second death agrees with what we say in the second death. But in the passion of Christ, his emphasis is slightly different, so it could appear that he is in contradiction with himself and also with us, but he's not. And here's the difference. This is where many people miss this. Because many people use the term, and I'm very precise and I never use this term because I don't like to lead, lead people to the misconclusion. But many people will say, Christ died the second death as our substitute. And we, we don't take that position. We take the position that Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. So there's a difference between dying eternally and never rising again and destroying death and overcoming it and holding the keys to the death and the grave. And Christ is the victor over death, not the, not, not the uh, one who has uh, suffered the, uh, the, the eternal death. But the reason, the reason that, that some can take this position is because they're not, actually emph- they're not actually looking through the actual metrics of what the second death is, a death from which there is no resurrection, for instance. That's a definition of the second death. Christ rose again, so by definition, it can't be second death. They, they focus on the, um, the attitude or the aspects of the Father's role in the death of the wicked in the end, and what Christ went through in what he experienced from his Father at the cross. And so what the Father does to the wicked in the end, he did to Christ at the cross. And what did the Father do to Christ at the cross? He withdrew his presence and set him free to reap what he chose. Remember, Christ said, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. When Peter pulled out a sword, he said, put away the sword. Shall I not complete the mission I came here to complete? Christ went through the cross willingly, voluntarily, and the only way he could complete his mission to die and destroy sin, destroy the death-causing principle, to restore God's law of love in the human humanity he took upon himself. The only way to complete that was for him to die at the cross, and he could not die at the cross. The Father, the source of life, didn't separate and let him do it. And so God chose to let him go, set him free to reap what he chose to be our Savior. In the end, God also takes the same action. He stops intervening and holding at bay the consequences of what the wicked have chosen in their life and withdraws his restraining hand and lets them reap what they've chosen. And they receive what they've chosen, but they chose something completely different than what Christ chose. Christ chose perfect harmony to God's law, which is the protocols of life, they choose complete rebellion against God's law, which separates them from life. So they experience eternal death, where Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. But the Father treats them both the same, giving them freedom to reap what they've chosen. So that's where he talks about receiving from the Father, when the Father abandons him there, the second death type experience from the Father, that's the Father, is, is, that's correct. But what he actually accomplished is completely different what the wicked go through. Let's see. So what are your thoughts about the Sabbath being the Sabbath day being the seal of God? Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay. For, do you know where it comes from? Okay, this comes from a legalistic mindset, approaching law like human law. And they will take a human law. When, no, it seriously, it seriously does. Uh, and they, and they, will, they will compare the, the, the God's law to human law to make the case from human law that this is God's seal. And when you look at a human seal, 
There is the territory of which they're sovereign over. There is the name of the sovereign. And there is, what's the third element? And so they'll have uh, the, the Lord, the creator. So he's creator. That's his, that's his position or title. Uh, all the heaven, the earth, and sea, and all that in them is. That's, the, that's where he's over. And so the elements that make up a seal of any uh, nation or whatever, they find in the Sabbath uh, commandment. So then they then say, so the Sabbath is the seal of God. That's where the argument comes from. If somebody wants to take a position, show me in scripture where it says the Sabbath is the seal of God. You can't find it. But you can find this. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 through 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is Ephesians 4.30. Do not uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love, brings truth to our minds in ways we can comprehend. And when we respond and open up, the Holy Spirit comes in and reproduces in us the character of Christ. No longer I that live, but Christ lives me. Or, another metaphor, writes the law, the law of love, on our hearts and minds. We are born again, circumcised the heart by the Holy Spirit. This is the work of sealing us. That's what the seal of God is, and that's why it's the Holy Spirit. So, if you value one of the founders of the SCA Church, historic position, written by Ellen White, this is what she wrote. You can find it in Faith I Live By, page 287. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, It is not a seal or a mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Sealed, settled intellectually, intellectually, truth, comprehension, understanding, your beliefs. Spiritually, your heart's affections, what you love. See, the, there are places in, in, the, in the New Testament uh, Gospels you can read where some of the Pharisees recognized intellectually what Jesus was saying. They were convicted. They saw it intellectually. They knew what he said there was true. But they didn't love it. They hated it. They were not sealed. So the sealing, and this is why it's the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth seals us intellectually. The spirit of truth and love seals our hearts to love the truth. So we can't be shaken from it. And that's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's what the actual sealing is. And then the Sabbaths, though, are not the seal. The Sabbath, or the sign, uh, that God is the one who seals us. Ezekiel twenty twelve. I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign so that they, between us, so that they would know I am the Lord who makes them holy. The Sabbath doesn't make us holy. The Lord makes us holy. So the Sabbath is a gift. And think about it. those who crucified Christ, they wanted him down by sunset to keep the Sabbath, the right Sabbath starting at the right time at sunset on Friday. Did that mean that they were sealed of God because they had the Sabbath? They had the seal. They had the seal. No, they were not sealed. The Sabbath is not the seal. The Sabbath is the gift 
given by God as a sign that he is the one who makes us holy or seals us. And the sealing is via the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the truth, spirit of truth and love, which settles us intellectually and spiritually to loyalty and fidelity to God and his kingdom. I think there might be one more question, maybe. Let's see. Why did Jesus say, unless he dies, the counselor, Holy Spirit, would not come when we have evidence the Holy Spirit was active on earth before the death of Christ? First off, do we need to correct that statement? Did he say, unless I die, the Spirit will not come? No. What did he say? He didn't say that. It's expedient for you that I leave. He'd already, yes, he said, it's being for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the comforter won't come. But the comforter and the spirit were already working. So what does it mean? I want you to imagine, this is very, very, just put, put yourself in the shoes. Either go back then or imagine that Jesus was physically here and present on earth today, like he was after his resurrection on the beach, making breakfast for them. Okay, He was physically there in real after his resurrection. If Jesus was physically here on earth today and the question and a dispute came up on some Bible text, how would we handle it? Would we study? Would we pray for wisdom? Would we ask for enlightenment? Would we go to Jesus to get a ruling? It's expedient for you to understand what does God want from us? Does he want obedient slaves who do what the master says or understanding friends. John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. friends because slaves or servants don't understand their master's business. He wants our loyalty, our devotion, our friendship, our trust, our love. You cannot get any of that by commanding people how to behave and answering. You have to lead them to understand for themselves and be won over. And it's expedient for Christ to leave so that they would search the scriptures for themselves, like the Bereans, and they would ask for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And how does the Spirit work? Gently, quietly. The Spirit is the still, small voice. You won't get the, you won't get the Spirit's enlightenment in the middle of your temper tantrum. You won't. You really won't. You'll have to calm down. And you'll have to reflect. And you'll have to open your heart. And the spirit and the still small voice will speak. And then you'll have to choose. Do you follow the leading of the spirit or reject it? And if you follow it, then you're empowered and transformed. And this is why it's expedient. Because it's the only way he can win the hearts and minds without intimidating us in fear. Now, that doesn't mean he never uses some, um, let's say, thundering at Sinai in order to stop a, a temper tantrum long enough for people to start listening. He's done that many times. But thundering never wins friends. It only stops chaos for a brief moment. Yes? Tim, back to that um, Sabbath being a seal, when... I became a Seventh-day Adventist in my 30s. That just really comforted me. I know I was not even above probably a level two. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems like somewhere along the line it might have a little place in our growth, our spiritual journey. So I, I'm not sure I understand. Um, so the Sabbath being a seal, I'm not sure I understand 
because it's not. I know now it's not. Okay, so, the, okay, so you're saying believing the Sabbath was a seal was comforting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and many people believe speaking in tongues is comforting and it's a sign of the Holy Spirit. And many people believe... Um, uh, many people draw comfort from lots of false beliefs. So the fact that we can be comforted from a belief, many people believe that, um, that uh, once they were saved, they're always saved. And there's nothing that can be lost. And they're, they're very comforted by that belief. Yeah. Many people are comforted, uh, believing that their loved ones are in heaven with Jesus right now, uh, in a conscious state. Okay, so, so I, I don't dispute that there might have been comfort there, but, you know, and, and, and the Holy Spirit will use that to help draw you. And I think my, my personal view was the comfort wasn't from the fact it was the, the seal of God. It was the fact that you understood a new truth, that the Sabbath was, was real and had real meaning, uh, and, it, and you, were, you were moving out of um, misunderstanding into greater understanding, and it's the movement from misunderstanding to understanding on any subject matter. You could, you could be talking about science, and you've misunderstood something for years, and now you understand it, and epiphany goes off. There's a certain joy and comfort that comes from that. So I think it was really the, the movement into greater truth on a matter that was actually comforting. And this is what you see on the road to Emmaus, is Jesus reveals this, the, the, the scriptures to them, and he says, didn't our hearts burn within us as he revealed the truth to us? Okay, and so I, I, I think that your where you were to where you were going was an advancement in truth, and that's comforting. In your view, uh, do the righteous become immortal, as many people believe, or will they continue to depend on Jesus for life forever? So it's an interesting. I think it's a it's it, it to, in my view it's a somewhat. What's the word I'm looking for? Functionally irrelevant question. Okay? I think technically it's true. Only God has inherent immortality. But Jesus gives the gift of immortality to us. Does that mean then that once it's given to us at the hereafter, that we can go on into rebellion and then in the new future there could develop a hell because those people can't die if they go into rebellion? No. All life will still be dependent on harmony with God. And, and the reason that we'll have immortal life is because we've so sealed or settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually, nothing can shake us from it. So we're eternally secure because we have gone through the trials and we have tested the other side and we are so settled into what's right, nothing can ever lead us away from it again. So, uh, Technically speaking, we don't, we don't ever become God, and we don't ever become the source of life, original, unborrowed, underived. God is, and so yes, technically we'll still derive that life from Christ, but that life will be free-flowing, and it will be given to us as a gift. So, Would God have eternal life if he broke his own laws? So God can't break his own laws. God, so that, that, that is one of those questions that actually is, is not possible. So that's a false question. That's a question that leads to a false conclusion. It's not possible. You're asking, um, can, so can, what would water be like if water was dry? Water can't be dry. Water's always wet. Okay? I'm asking the question because if we are following the protocols that God gave us to life, inherently... After we get to heaven, are we in just automatically living eternally because of it? We're living eternally because we're connected to the source of life. He is the vine, we are the branches, and his life flows through us freely, and he shares his life with us. We don't ever have it inherently in ourselves. We derive it from him, but it flows freely because there's nothing that obstructs it, and he doesn't restrain it or, or retain it in any way. 
What causes um, repetitive night terrors? Some night terrors after... So night terrors, night terrors by definition, the word that I'm understanding clinically, it's a childhood sleep disorder. It's a neurological disorder that happens in childhood. And it is... uh, Talk to a neurologist, talk to your your pediatrician. It's just a neurological wiring issue of the brain that causes this. Most kids will outgrow it. You can have... There's medicines you can take that can suppress it. Is there an in-person Bible study this afternoon? Well, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> so I'm going to put it out there, and I want the, uh, the, the, this question is for those who, who t- attend in person, whether regularly or intermittently. If you're going to be in person, what I have done informally is, is, is found that there's actually two groups of people who want to fellowship here on our weekly, or monthly potluck weekend. One group of people after the potluck would like to step aside and have an in-depth Bible study. Another group of people realize that most of what our time together is is Bible study, and they would like time to fellowship and socialize and get to know each other more. Both are very righteous and legitimate things to do. So my personal suggestion is that moving forward, we'll have potluck, and at some time in potluck, our conference room back at the end of the hall, it's not ready today, but hopefully by next month will be. All those who want to have a Bible study can go back there and have a Bible study, and all those who want to fellowship and socialize can stay out here and socialize. What do you all think of my suggestion? No? Bad idea? Good idea? Good idea. Okay. So today, will there be a Bible study? Uh, I, I, it, it, that coin is still circling and tossing in the air. Uh, at potluck, as the potluck is settling down, I'm going to stand up and ask, uh, is there any interest or want to just socialize this week and, and next week we'll do an afternoon Bible study. But if the group really wants a Bible study, we can have one. So we'll see what happens. Does the soul die at death? If it does, how can God recreate the soul? No, the soul does not die at death. This is John, uh, Matthew ten 28. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul, but, excuse me, destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul. At the first death experience, it's like software on your computer backed up on a, on a cloud. The machine stops operating, but the data, the individuality of the person is safe and secure, waiting for download into a new, a new body. So this is what Jesus meant. Don't, um, those who believe in me will never die. Even though he dies, they, they will never die. They will live again. He's talking about the soul, the individuality is not destroyed. The eternal death, the death from sin, is the death in which the body and the soul are destroyed and never operate again. So, all right, thank you all very much. And let's go and close with prayer. And then we'll, and I'm going to go ahead and just bless the food now. So when you go through, you can, uh, you can uh, have your, your food, okay? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your provisions for us. We thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together this weekend. Bless the food as we have it here today that it will strengthen us, that we can uh, be of greater service in your cause. We pray in your holy name. Oh, and bless all those who have prepared this food. We thank you, thank you for them. Amen. Amen.